Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. That is uh, such a tremendous song simply as a statement of gospel truth, of gospel fact. That there is nothing but the blood of Jesus that can make us pure. That it is the blood of Jesus that is our righteousness, that is our hope and our peace. There's a lot of people looking for hope in a lot of ways today. There's a lot of people looking for peace in a lot of ways today. They're seeking peace in material gain. They're seeking peace in a medicine bottle. They're seeking peace in a liquor bottle. They're seeking peace in so many ways. They say, if only I could have a little more money, I'd be happy. If only I had a little more of this, I'd be happy. If only I had my health back, I'd be happy. And yet we who are in Christ know that true peace and contentment comes in only one way. And it comes through the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's what we're going to talk about today. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 6. The Gospel. The Gospel. This word, the Gospel, is a word that literally in the Greek means good news. And really it's not just good news. It's the best news. The Gospel is the most important message the world has ever known. It is also the most polarizing message the world has ever known. The Gospel is the very foundation of what you and I hold most dear in this world and the next, and yet the Gospel is also that which tears families apart, tears friendships apart, tears cultures apart, divides nations and people groups. The Gospel transcends gender or race. It transcends nation or culture. It is for every man. It is for every woman. It is for every child, regardless of who you are, regardless of what culture you are, regardless of what you have done. The Gospel is for you. The Gospel has a profound impact not only upon our future, that being heaven or hell, but upon our present. What you do on a daily basis, moment by moment, when you wake up in the morning, the first things that you do when you get dressed, when you go downstairs, what you decide to do for the day, how you interact with your family, how you interact with your neighbors, where you go, what you say, what you think, it is impacted by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel doesn't just touch our lives. The Gospel doesn't even simply enrich our lives. The Gospel defines our lives. We are redeemed. We are born again. We are saved. We have received the Gospel. Let's read together this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-6. through 6. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the Gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. We will stop there for today, pick up there next week as we continue walking through First Corinthians. 
Now, as Paul writes these words in their context, we know that he is writing to a group of people who he believes or he understands to have already accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have already accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. He calls them brethren. We know throughout the book he has assumed that they are already believers. He says that this is, is a gospel that he has already preached unto them and that they have received and in fact they stand within it already. So as Paul is re-emphasizing the gospel here, he's not writing to those who have never heard it before. And this is evident not only in the way he says it, but in the order. He almost gives the gospel in a bit of a reverse order. He, he talks about them receiving it, and then he talks about what it is. Today, I'm going to reverse that order. I'm going to tell you what the gospel is, and then I'm going to talk about receiving it. And then talk about we who have received it. Now, as we think of it in context, the direction Paul is going is to a tremendous error that the Corinthians had in their understanding of the gospel. We'll talk about that over the next few weeks. But today I want to center on this idea that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to answer two important questions about the gospel, and then we're going to apply together this morning. The first question will actually be found in verses 3 through 6. And the question is this, what is the gospel? And then we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, as we answer the second question, how do you receive the gospel? So what is the gospel and how do you receive the gospel? Let's take a look at it together. We read the passage. As we answer this first question, what is the gospel? The gospel is simply this. The gospel begins with a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul takes for granted here, as you see the highlighted portion, that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Christ. We see that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. But we need to start with this title, the Christ. See, the fact that Jesus is Christ is very important. The gospel is about this one who would be the Christ. In the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, promises that a virgin would bring forth a son and that his name would be Emmanuel. We understand this to be that chosen one, this to be that Christ. As we look in Matthew chapter 1, verses 23, verse 23, excuse me, we see that this prophecy is, is coming to fruition. And in Matthew one twenty three, the scriptures say, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And in Matthew one twenty three, that word Emmanuel is translated for us. And it literally means God with us. God with us. So this one who would come, this man who would come, the Christ, would be God in flesh. He would be God, very God, not have a portion of God with him or not be greatly empowered by God. He would be God himself. And the Bible says that this one who is God would come for a very specific purpose. This purpose is given in Isaiah 53 verse 5 and says this, but he was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So this one, this Christ, this Messiah, God in flesh, came to bear your sin, your iniquity, your transgression. He came to bear it in his body. You say, well, pastor, what is sin? Sin is to miss the mark of God's character. It is anything that we say, anything we do, anything we think that is contrary to the will or the word of God. So if God has said he doesn't like it, or if God's character is opposed to it, and you do it, then it is sin. So the Messiah, the Christ, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, came to bear your sin. He came and he was wounded, was bruised, was chastised for your sin. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.3 that Christ died for our sins, he is stating some very important things about this man, Jesus Christ, that we need to know. He's stating that Jesus is God, God in flesh. For the Bible teaches that Christ would be God. He is also stating that Jesus was sinless, for God cannot sin. God cannot oppose himself. If God does it, then it is inherently not sin because it is not opposed to who he is. Therefore, this Jesus, who is God, would be sinless. But we also know that this is a son. He is conceived. He is a child of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of David. He's of those descendants. He's not just God, but he is indeed a man. He is God and he is a man. Jesus, the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. And this man who is God, named Jesus Christ, verse 3 says, died for our sins. Died for all of those things you have done that God is not pleased with. Died for every lie. Died for every deceit. Every time you've cheated. Every time you've stolen. Every hateful word that's ever come out of your mouth. Every ounce of pride. Every bit of bitterness. He died for your sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 tells us this, Who His own self bear our sins in His own body on the tree, that being the cross, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Peter would also say this in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, For as much as ye know, that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vein, that's empty conversation, that's lifestyle, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We have been redeemed by Christ's death. We have been healed by Christ's death. The punishment that was put upon Him was your punishment. And Jesus Christ bore it in your place. When Jesus died on the cross, when his blood was spilled, something very important happened on that day. The Bible says on that day that all of the sins 
that you and I have committed were judged, were paid for in Christ's body. The reason why He was lashed and He was beaten and the crown of thorns was put on His head and nails were put in His hands and in His feet and He hung on that cross to suffocate and to die. Only He gave up the ghost before He would do so. The reason why He did that, what that was, was the punishment of your sin in Him. And as He hung on the cross, the Scriptures say that God poured out His wrath upon this innocent man, this man who had done no sin. And God's wrath was poured upon Him. Whose wrath was it if it wasn't for Christ? It was the wrath of God for your sin that was placed upon that cross, on Christ on that cross. It was God's wrath that was poured out on Jesus Christ for you. And He bore it so that you could be healed. He bore it so that you could have salvation. Every lie, every fit of anger, every ounce of pride, every offense to God on the day Jesus died, all of God's anger, all of God's punishment was poured out on Jesus. Isaiah 53, we come back to this verse. And it makes a little more sense now, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes, that being the marks down His back from the whip that tore His flesh, with His stripes, we are healed. That's good news. It's the best news. But Jesus didn't just die for our sins, did He? The Bible says He was buried. The point here is to say that Jesus really did die. He really did die. There was no trickery here. There was no sleight of hand. Jesus' blood poured on the ground. Jesus was beaten, bruised. He was maimed. His soul left His body. He was dead. He was verified to be dead. The soldier came and pierced His side and the blood and the water poured out. It had separated because He had died. There was no question. There was no more life in Him. He was buried in a tomb just like any other dead person was buried. But see, that's where the similarities end because something different happened with Jesus after He was put in that tomb. He died for our sins. He was buried. And that last little part, portion of the Gospel is that He rose again the third day. See, the Bible tells us Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days after Jesus' death and burial, His followers went to His tomb. The morning of the third day, the Scriptures tell us. And when they arrived, they found that tomb empty. An angel sitting on top of the stone that had been rolled away said, He is not here, for He is risen as He said. Jesus had not been lost. Jesus had not been taken. Jesus had not been moved. Jesus had risen from the dead. And as we continue seeing the testimony here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, how do I know He was risen from the dead? Well, Cephas, that's the Hebrew name of Peter, Peter saw Him. And then His twelve disciples, the twelve apostles that followed Him, they saw Him. And then, 500 people at one time saw Him. That would have been as after Jesus 
came. He went to Galilee and his disciples met him there to get more teaching. All 500 saw him at one time. Most of them are still alive today. You can go ask him. And Paul will go on to say, as we'll look at next week, Paul says, oh, and by the way, I've seen him too. He has appeared to me in flesh. I know he's alive because I have seen him with my own eyes. Jesus did rise from the dead. And on that day, the day Jesus rose from the dead, something else amazing happened. See, when Jesus died on the cross, when his blood was spilt, your sins were atoned. Your sin was paid for. But on the day Jesus rose from the dead, on the day Jesus rose in his resurrected body unto eternal life, he was given authority by God to raise up others unto eternal life. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. Jesus is God. He bore your sins on the cross. And because he paid the punishment for your sin, it is possible for you to be saved from your sin. And because Jesus rose again unto eternal life, it is possible for you to have eternal life as well. That's good news. But just because you can have eternal life doesn't mean you do have eternal life. Jesus paid for the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future. They're all paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. But just because they're all paid for doesn't mean everyone's going to be in heaven one day. We're not preaching a universalist gospel today. Jesus paid your debt. But just because He paid the debt, this does not mean you have automatically become a recipient of salvation. So what is the gospel? The gospel is this. That Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried. And He rose again the third day. He bore your sins. And He has authority given by God through His resurrection to give unto you eternal life. Second question. How do you receive the Gospel? How does this gift become yours? How is it applied to you? The Bible tells us in John three sixteen through 18 this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, your sins have been paid, but your sins being paid is not enough to get you to heaven. The Bible says this, that on the day Jesus died and all of the sins of the world were poured out in punishment upon Him, God transferred to Jesus the authority to decide who would go to heaven and who would not. If I may describe it this way, Back in centuries past, when a person racked up a great debt, there were several potential consequences. One of those consequences is they could be thrown in debtor's prison until they paid their debt. One of the other things that could happen is a person could, could 
hold this great debt against you and they could sell that debt to someone else. So someone comes along and says, I want to buy this person's debt. Bell is in debt to me for $10,000. It's a lot of money, Bell. Caleb comes up and says, I want to buy Bell's debt. And so I say, okay, give me the $10,000. So I get the $10,000 from Caleb. Now Bell is no longer in debt to me. She is in debt to who? Caleb. Now, when she was in debt to me, I could decide what to do with her. Would I charge her 10% interest, 15% interest? Would I make her make monthly payments, yearly payments? It was up to me because it was, it was, I held the debt. When Caleb buys the debt, now he holds the debt. He makes the decisions. You might think of it today as perhaps a mortgage. A bank has a mortgage out on your house, we'll say. You owe that bank money that you give them in regular payments until such time as you have paid off all your debt. You can refinance, however. Or that bank can take the initiative to sell off your mortgage. You refinance and you decide to go with another bank. Well, now that other bank gives you the money to pay your first bank and now you owe the money to the second bank. The terms are different. What the first bank wanted you to do as far as payments is not necessarily the same as the second. Think of debt that way and translate it to your sin debt. You owed a debt to God the Father that you could not pay and His wrath was upon you. Jesus says, I'll pay that debt. So Jesus Christ died a sinner's death on the cross, took the pain, took the punishment, took the wrath of God upon the cross and purchased the debt the sin debt of the entire world. Every single person who has ever lived, past, present, and future, is paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, God had a standard, God the Father had a standard that no man could pay, perfection. No man could attain unto that standard. When God the Son paid the debt, His standard is different the qualification for our debt is different. Jesus says, your debt will be entirely forgiven. See, he has the authority because he paid the price. Your debt will be entirely forgiven if you will but accept the free gift of salvation. If you will but believe on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, your debt will be forgiven. So even though all men have had their debt paid for, it will not be relinquished until they meet the standard that Jesus Christ has set in place, which is belief on the name of Jesus to be saved. I've often described it this way, a gift, right? Most of you have heard this. Jesus bought our salvation and it is a gift. He, he doesn't want to hold it over our heads. He wants to forgive it. He says here, if you will but accept it, it's forgiven. But if we don't accept it, It's not forgiven. That's the idea. God the Father's wrath rested upon you, so you were on your way to hell. Jesus paid the penalty that you deserved and took God's wrath on Him. So in a sense, your sin debt was transferred from God the Father to God the Son. Now God the Son has the legal authority to declare who will go to heaven and who will not. 
This is why when you get to the book of Revelation, everyone cries out, who is worthy to open the book? Well, who is it that is found worthy to open the book? The Lamb. The one who paid the price. He's worthy because He paid the price. Jesus has decided that the way you pay that debt is by believing on His name. Wow. That's mercy. Now, what does it mean to believe? Take a look at another um, passage with me. Excuse me. Let's look at uh, our passage, 1 Corinthians 15, as we understand what it means to believe. Those first two verses say, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which ye... Uh, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. And then he says here, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. So Paul says the standard for salvation is belief, but a part of that idea of believing, he says here, as we see that word keep in memory, literally means to hold fast. To genuinely accept the gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply to say in my mind, yes, that's probably true, but to receive the gospel for myself, to accept it for myself. It was not enough for a Corinthian believer to simply say, yep, yep, Jesus died. That's probably the way it happened. Or, yep, that that works for me if you say so. Or, yep, yeah, I know that Jesus was God. James tells us even the devils believe Jesus is God and they tremble. But it is to take what we have heard and to commit ourselves to it, to accept it with all of our hearts, to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ for ourselves, to believe it. Paul teaches here that the man who is truly saved is the man who has placed his full faith and his complete trust in what Jesus Christ did for him on the cross and have accepted that gift for himself. So John 3.18 tells us that there is one difference between the man, the woman, or the child who is on his way to hell and the man, woman, or child who is on his way to heaven. There's one difference. And that difference is not good works. That difference is not church attendance. That difference is not how bad his sins were. The difference is not whether or not he was well-meaning. The difference between the hell-bound, condemned human and the gloriously saved, uncondemned, forgiven human is whether or not you have personally accepted the gift of salvation that Jesus Christ purchased on the cross of Calvary. And if I may put it this way for you, give you a little perspective on this. One day there will not be one person burning in hell because of the personal sins that he has committed. Every person that will burn in hell one day will do so because they refuse to believe on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. Because Jesus has paid for the rest. He holds the key and the standard is now belief alone. You are either a believer or you are an unbeliever. There's no middle ground. You have either accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ or you have not accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good works can't make it 
because good works is not the standard. Church attendance won't get you there to heaven because church attendance is not the standard. John 3, 16-18 says, Belief on the name of Jesus Christ is the standard for salvation. Now, what else does this mean? Well, this means by proxy that those who reject Jesus Christ are not on their way to heaven. That means the Muslim who has rejected Jesus Christ as God in flesh is not on his way to heaven. That means the Buddhist who believes that heaven will come by any other means than Jesus Christ is not on his way to heaven. That means religious people who think that something about their religion, whether it be their baptism or whether it be uh, their partaking in, in the Lord's table or whether it be their faithful church attendance or whether it be their prayers or whether it be their piety or whether it be their sacrifices, the people that believe that those things are going to get themselves to heaven have missed the standard because the standard is belief on the name of Jesus Christ alone. Only those who accept the gospel of Jesus Christ through belief on His name are on their way to heaven. That's what the Bible says. And this is why Jesus taught in Matthew 7.14, straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. Have you ever been called narrow-minded? It's probably a compliment. Because the way is very narrow. There's only one way. There's only one way to salvation. And it is through Jesus Christ alone. It's not that it's difficult to find. That's not why there's few that find it. It's not because it's hard. It's not because you have to dig through a lot of theology. It's not because you have to attain to some special level. It's not because you have to really be willing to, to go the distance. The reason why it's there's few that find it is not because it's hard to find. It's because people don't want to find it. It's because men love darkness rather than light. Let's apply this morning. The Gospel is thus. Jesus died on the cross. He bore your sin. He paid your penalty. And now He offers you the gift of salvation free of works, free of obligation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You will have, when you stand before God, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you stand before God, and God says, Why should I let you into heaven? There will be no one filled with pride on that day, saying, Yep, you should let me in because of something I have done. You should let me in because I made it. Because I was faithful. Because I went to church. Because I gave so much. Let me show you my check register. When we stand before God one day, we will humbly say, I'm under the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no reason why you should let me in except that I have done as Christ asked. I have believed on His name. His blood was shed for me. No works. Faith alone. Do you feel hopeless today? Jesus Christ gives hope. Are you captive to a sin and can't find your way out? Jesus died to set you free. Do you long for a relationship with God but don't know where to begin? Well, Jesus said, No man cometh unto the Father, that's God, but 
by me. Do you want to know God? Go through his Son. Because no man cometh unto the Father but through the Son, Jesus Christ. Christ's part. Well, he played the part. He died on the cross and he bore your sin. Your part. What must you do? Nothing particular as far as a work would be concerned. What must you do? You must believe. You must receive the gift. You must accept the offer. You must stand with Christ. That's it. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You simply need to receive it. As I've said this, my words aren't going to have much effect, but I trust that the Holy Spirit of God, who is working in the hearts of men, is speaking. And as I have spoken this morning, if you are sitting in your chair or you are listening to me and you know that you have never accepted salvation, the gift of Jesus Christ through faith, may I encourage you to make today that day. To make today the day that you receive the gift of Jesus Christ, that you accept salvation by grace through faith. May I encourage you, even there in your seat right now, pray to God silently this very moment and tell Him that you accept the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, that was paid on the cross. That you believe that Jesus is God, that He died on the cross for your sin, that He rose again to give you eternal life. And the Scriptures tell us on the authority of God's Word that if you will believe, you will be saved. Say, Pastor, I've done so much. I can't believe that God would make it so easy, that God would make it so free after all the sin I did. But it's paid. Jesus bore it already. He suffered the wrath of God. He suffered the pain and the anguish for you. He paid for it. It doesn't matter how bad it is or was. It's paid. Will you believe that? Will you accept it? If you have just done that, or if you'd like to know more, if you're still not sure, Pastor, I, I, I need to know more, would you come see me so I can open a Bible and show you more about what the Bible says about how to be saved? If you did accept Christ this morning, would you come tell me so I can give you some next steps in your understanding of your relationship with God through Christ? So Christ's part, death, burial, Resurrection. Your part. Receive. Accept it. Stand. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Your responsibility. My final point here is for those of you who have already accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. 1 Corinthians 15 is written to those who have already accepted Christ as their Savior by and large. That was Paul's audience. That was Paul's intent. In many ways, then, it would be much like this church in that we are believers, we know the gospel. But the Corinthian church had lost sight of what the gospel meant to them. They had lost sight of the gospel and had fallen into errors. We've seen that throughout the entire book, haven't we? They have been redeemed from their sin and yet they were bearing with a man in the church who was fornicating with his mother-in-law. They had been redeemed from sin 
and yet they were fighting against one another about who was the most spiritual and who had the right ideas. They were redeemed from sin, but their Lord's Supper was defined by gluttony, drunkenness, and refusal to allow the poorest among them to partake. They were redeemed from their sin, yet they walked in their sin. They had gone back to that which they had already been redeemed from. See, the Bible says we can do that, ladies and gentlemen. The Bible says that when we got saved, we were not separated from our sin nature. We were simply given power over our sin nature. What that means is that though we are now free from the penalty of sin, the penalty of sin, which is death and hell, If you're a believer, you're saved from that. And you have been redeemed from the power of sin in that you no longer have to to submit yourself to sin and you will one day be redeemed even from the presence of sin. Paul teaches us that you have the ability, because you have a free will, to submit yourself back under your sinful nature, back under your flesh, and do those things which are displeasing to God even though you're saved. This does not make you unsaved. You can't be unsaved. If you've accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are saved. You're born again. You can't be unborn, can you? If, if, if you're made a new creature, you can't be unmade. You're saved. However, you can submit yourself to your flesh. You can live a completely carnal life as the Corinthian church did. But it is your privilege and your responsibility as believers not to live that life. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How should we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How should you who have died to sin, who have been redeemed from sin, who, who, have been, who have been brought out from underneath the power of sin, how is it that you should place yourself back under its power again? How is it that when God hates lying and you have been redeemed from the need to lie so that you can be a child of the truth, would you go back to regular lying? How is it that you, who have been redeemed from this world's mindset, the mindset of humanism, the mindset of selfishness, of materialism, of pride, of bitterness, how is it that you who have been redeemed from these sins, how is it that you place yourself back under these sins and you you lift yourself up in pride and you live with bitterness and anger and hatred one toward another and you fight and you quarrel and you disagree and you separate and you act just like the world around you? We've been redeemed from that, folks. And it's not a life that is, is just a life of dirge, of sacrifice. It's not just, oh, I'm a Christian now, so I can't, I can't, I can't. That's not it, folks. It's not, I'm a Christian now, so I can't. It's a, I'm a Christian now, so I don't have to. I don't have to be compelled by my flesh. I don't have to be stuck in this rut of materialism. I don't have to give in to my selfish pride. I don't have to because I'm redeemed. I'm saved. I can live a life that is so much greater now. I can leave all of that sin 
behind and I can please the God of the universe. Do you know that if you're a believer, you are exclusive in that you are the only ones on this earth, those who are in Christ, who are capable of truly pleasing God? They that are in the flesh cannot please God. Scriptures tell us. You can. Have you allowed the sins that God has saved you from to creep back into your life? Does your obedience to God begin and end on Sunday? Are you a one day a week Christian? You get dressed up and you come to church and you look the part and you try to do right because it's the Lord's day and then Monday it's back to you. What you want to do, your priorities. How do you act when no one sees? Is God pleased with what you do at home? Because make no mistake, He sees. Is God pleased with what you do at school? With your friends when your parents aren't around? Is God pleased with what you do at work when you don't have to be that good example for your kids? Is God pleased with how you use your free time? Is God pleased with your family time? See, as those who have been redeemed, we have the ability to please God. But are we? One more thought and then we close. You've accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ by grace through faith in the finished work. You've believed on His name. You're trying your best to live it. To be what you need to be. To reject those things that the Holy Spirit has convicted your heart about. You've changed what you watch on television. You've changed what you do on the internet. You've changed how you speak. You've changed where you go. You change what your family does for fun because you want to please the Lord. Now are you telling others? There's elements of a Christian life. See, you start out as a... When you're born again, you start out as a baby. You've got to grow. You've got to learn. But there comes a point where you ought to become a reproducing Christian. You shouldn't stagnate in a pool of your own righteousness. You should be spreading the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are around you. Not just in action, but in word. Others should be able to see God in you and to hear God through you. You ought to be telling others. Are you telling others. Are you a believer? Have you received the free gift? Imagine if I had the cure for cancer. And I know how many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people die and how many millions are afflicted with this disease. And I said, yeah, I've got this, but what are they going to think of me if I tell them? What if some people don't like me for it? What if I don't explain it right? I think I'll just keep it to myself. And you read in the newspaper every day of people dying and suffering, and you have the answer, and you just keep it to yourself. Now you walk into that restaurant on a Sunday afternoon after church. You don't know your waitress. 
She's had a hard day, she said. And you say, okay. And you know in the back of your mind, this lady needs what I have. And you smile and you watch her pass by. She continues on her way to hell. And you did nothing. Well, your neighbor, who you know is an unbeliever, and who you've never spoken of the gospel to, hoping that maybe someone will figure it out one day and someone will come to their door. They'll wander into a church that just might preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one day they'll stand before God and they'll hear those words, guilty. And you live next to them for 20 years with the answer. And you never even mentioned it. I don't want this to be a guilt message from me. But I think many of the tears that will be in our eyes on the day that I stand before the Lord. Let me just point, my, point the finger at me this morning. When I stand before the Lord, if He were to come today and I were to give an account for the last three years of me being a pastor and I stand before the Lord, I guarantee you that the majority of the tears in my eyes will be all of those people that I didn't tell that I should have. Now, we're not all extroverts. In fact, your pastor's an introvert. He's not good at this stuff. Nor are perhaps some of you. But we have something very important. It's not just life or death. It's eternal life or eternal death. And people are on their way to a real place called hell where they will be separated from God and they will burn for eternity. And some of those people are your family members. Some of your mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and cousins and nephews and nieces will be burning in that hellfire for eternity. Your neighbors will be burning in hellfire for eternity. And we have one life to tell them. What are we doing with our time? The gospel of Jesus Christ is to them who have never heard it. Freedom and salvation to we who have heard it. It's a reminder that the things that matter in this life are not actually in this life. The things that matter in this life are what are done for the next. One day, your house and your cars and your computers and your video consoles and your televisions and your clothing and all of those things are going to burn or deteriorate or whatever. They'll be gone. But what will not be gone and what will last for eternity is what you do for God in this life. How are you doing? Let's pray.